Today's message is probably going to be a little uncomfortable. Not for me, but for you. <laughs> All right. Anytime you talk about sex in church, people squirm in their seats, feels a little awkward, there's a little bit of discomfort. And I get that, right? Uh, that's not usually what you hear talked about in church. In fact, some churches will go never, right, without speaking about it other than if you're not married, don't do it, right? Um, you know, so we might feel a little bit uncomfortable. Our single young adults in here might feel a little bit uncomfortable. I get it. Our older adults here probably going to feel uncomfortable, a little bit awkward. I get it. Our younger couples are probably like, yeah, okay, All right? They may not feel as awkward or uncomfortable, um, but I want to speak freely today, which is why we had a lot of our, our younger kids exit our service. Typically, they're in here with us, which we love. Uh, but uh, this theme is a little bit uh, more appropriate uh, for the older amongst us here. I do feel, though, that this theme is one that's worth a little bit of discomfort and feeling of awkwardness. Uh, if we are to step into the life-giving paths of the wisdom of marriage, okay, and, and step into the, the glorious things that God's Word speaks concerning sex and marriage, These are the ancient paths of biblical sexual ethics that are the tried and true, well-worn paths that produce life. And it's blessed because it's God's design. That word path is one we see continually in Proverbs that speaks about our journey in life. But there's also this aspect of the path of wisdom. And a path is something that is, is worn out through repeated use, right? It's the, the known and proven way to go. And that's the path of wisdom, the ancient paths. And God's word has a lot to say concerning this particular theme and topic. So you might learn something today that perhaps corrects a misunderstanding you might have regarding sex and marriage and what all that's supposed to be. Like, I'm not going to teach how to do it, okay? I presume everyone in this room knows how to do that, right? But if you're single here today, I I pray that this is going to be a blessing to you to know something about it for your future marriage. If you're older here and you're like, I've been married a long time, well, God places younger couples in your path that you can instruct and counsel. And if you're married today, uh, my prayer is you just put it into practice, all right? And uh, heed the clear command of scripture for your, uh, that is life for your marriage now. Uh, Let me recap just a hair here in terms of what we've already covered in chapter 5. Now, we're going to be reading 15 to 23 in just a few moments, but today we're going to focus on 15 through 20, the latter part of the chapter we've talked about in the previous messages here. In chapter 5 so far, Solomon, who is the writer of these particular uh, chapters of Proverbs, is writing lessons to his son. He's teaching his son through a series of lessons. And this particular lesson starts at the beginning of chapter 5. And there he cautions his son concerning the folly of sexual sin. He reminds the son once again to heed his counsel, to pay attention to his instruction, to not forsake the teachings of his father and his mother, right? The teachings of wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, and and to, to hold close to them. Because on the path of life, His son is going to encounter sexual temptation of one degree or another. And there is a particular one that he's going to warn his son about when he's married. And that is the sexual temptation to commit adultery with 
what's called in the ESV translation, the forbidden woman, right? That really mysterious woman who's none other than an adulteress, uh, a seductress, the one who's going to woo him away to break covenant, uh, the covenant of marriage with his wife, right? She's the sensuous, flirtatious, smooth-talking seductress with honey lips, right? Says that her lips drip with honey, and not only that, she uses flattering words, flattering talk to what? Tell this young man, right, to hear what he wants to hear. Things that are going to tickle his ego and to chase after her. Hers is a rival voice to that of the father's. Now, while the adulteress is a real temptation and a real woman, right, it's a real deal, the adulteress or the forbidden woman is also kind of a placeholder word. She stands in place for all types of sexual temptation to sin, not just adultery, but fornication uh, and, and pornography and homosexuality and any other type of sexual perversion. And the son must keep discretion. His lips must guard knowledge because if he doesn't heed wisdom, he's going to be easy prey for the forbidden woman. Right? He's going to give in to temptation. And that path always leads to death. So he must ponder the path of life. He needs to consider the consequences of his actions before he takes actions. And the fool doesn't do that, right? The fool just acts out of his impulses, out of his carnal desires and whims, and he goes headlong down the path, and it leads to death. The consequences of sexual sin are severe, we looked at last week. They're severe. There are temporal consequences, things that might hit you in this life. We talked about, you know, the consequences of adultery. But there's also consequences that will hit us in the eternal life as well if we do not repent of sexual sin. So the bottom line, don't get close to the thing or person that can draw you into the gravitational pull of sexual sin. Don't flirt with temptation. Don't try to get as close to the line as possible without crossing it because we'll not overcome the temptation that we continually entertain in our life. And the father concludes in that last portion there in the middle of this chapter uh, with the thoughts of the son who despised and rejected discipline. He says, how I hated discipline and now his life is in misery. So don't despise discipline. Heed wisdom Because the Lord sees everything, and he will judge accordingly. Okay? So today, there's a shift here. Our passage is going to specifically address the antidote to the honey lips and smooth-talking seductress. It presents the antidote to adultery, the antidote to sexual sin. And do you want to know what that is? Do you want to know on the front end? Or do you want me to tell you later? The antidote is very simple. Have lots and lots of sex with your husband and your wife. That's the antidote. All right, amen. Let's go home. (laughs) Married couples, go forth and put it into practice. Oh, there's lots to say here. But go ahead and turn to the fifth chapter of Proverbs. Again, we're going to pick up here in verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter Hear the words of the living God. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, 
streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountains be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. These are the words of the Lord. Now Solomon tells his son here, here's the best way to avoid the path that leads to the forbidden woman and to stay on the path of wisdom. And that is the path that reflects the wisdom of marriage. So before we unpack this particular passage and walk through it here, let me consider a few foundational things concerning marriage, which This is just going to be a refresher for the large majority of us, but we always need to have this before us, the theology of marriage from the creation account. In the first chapter of Genesis, verses 27 and 28, God's word says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right. We're familiar with this portion of the creation account. We call this this mandate given to man and woman, the creation mandate or the dominion mandate where man and woman as God's image bearers are to propagate their species They're to make more image bearers. And that's how they're going to fill the earth, by multiplication. Makes sense, right? Right? That's how God designed it. It's how they're going to exercise dominion over everything in God's creation. Multiplication, right? They're going to multiply over the face of the earth and thus subdue it. It takes both of them to do that, notice. He didn't just say to the man, all right, be fruitful and multiply. Kind of hard to do by himself. Nor did he say that just to the woman, right? It's going to take both of them to fulfill this task. A male with a male cannot do it. A female with a female cannot do it. No, it's a man and a woman. This is God's created order. This is what God established. Not what modern science has to say or our culture. Now, Genesis 2 expands the account of the creation here of man and woman, but specifically with the creation of woman for the man. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2 here. We're going to read verse 18 and then 21 through 24. Word of God says, Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman 
and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What does God do here? God fashions from the man a suitable companion for him. Literally, one that corresponds to him. One that is like him, but not exactly like him, but together they will complement one another and be able to fulfill the mandate the Lord has given them. That's what marriage is all about. Marriage is an institution that was instituted at creation. That's when it took place. This isn't something God came, that man came up with centuries later and says, you know what, let's kind of formalize this thing between a man and a woman and, 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 and just make it something legit. No, no, we see that right here from the beginning, from God's plan of creation here. It is his default design and plan for humanity. And Adam immediately recognizes here uh, this reality and declares the biological imperative of a man leaving his parents, coming together with the woman, and being joined with her in this one flesh union. Now notice something here in the New Testament, because we see this reality of the institution of marriage at creation affirmed and confirmed by the Lord Jesus himself. I'm not going to turn to these passages, but you can read them on your own. Matthew 19.4, Jesus confirms that marriage is a creational institution and mandate. Paul also confirms this in his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.13. And in Peter's letter, he also implies this in 1 Peter 3.7. This is God's plan for humanity. One man, one woman, becoming one flesh. It's a covenantal union. It's a union that is established through sexual intimacy. That is where this one flesh, one souled uh, perspective comes into place. A monogamous heterosexual union that will result in the furtherance of the human race. Isn't that awesome? This was before the fall. It's not after the fall. This is before the fall. Get that into your heart because it's critical to what we're going to talk about concerning sex and marriage here. Okay? It's happened before the fall. And you know, God's creation, what did he say about his creation? That it was what? It's good. It's good. The way God designed it is good. That's the path for humanity going forward. That is blessed and that is good. And notice, this isn't just for Christians. This is for all of humanity. Marriage is for all of humanity. That is God's design and plan. Now, if this is God's plan for humanity, then the biological urges and drives and sexual desires are God-given. And therefore, the fulfillment of the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Male and female sexual desire for one another is not inherently sinful. You get that? It's not. It's not. I grew up, right, in the old Pentecostal legalistic world, right, where if you have sexual desires out of marriage, you're a filthy, rotten sinner, you know, don't do it. It's normal to have that. It's good to have that. Yes? It's not a trick question. Like, that's, that's the way God made it. God hardwired us with the mechanism to fulfill 
the mandate. Sexual impulses, sexual drives. But here's the wisdom of the creator. He also made the act to fulfill the, the creation mandate something enjoyable and pleasurable. Why? Well, for his glory, for our good, and so that we'd want to do it again and again, over and over. Amen? Yeah, it's a good thing. Like, if he didn't make it pleasurable, the world's population would probably be pretty small. <laughs> be a handful of people, then they die off, and it's like, all right, well, that, that failed. No, sex is a good thing. Sex is a good thing. It's a God thing. It's not dirty the way God intended for it to be. Now, we know post-fall, it gets all jacked up, right? It's distorted. It's abused, right? It's, it's, it's twisted. It's perverted. But that does not negate the fact that God made it good and pleasurable in its proper context, the one flesh union of a married couple. Okay? That's important. In the church, we kind of screwed this up along the way. There's a lot of early church fathers who taught that because sex had been perverted after the fall, because it's just nasty and dirty and there's rampant sexual immorality, that not even married couples should engage in sexual activity. It's kind of, kind of hard to make babies without it, right? Especially, you know, a long time ago, right? Real difficult. Then there was teachings as well at certain parts of church history and, and still to this day where it's like, look, you got to do it. It's not good. So if you're married, you need to make babies. You need to have lots of kids. So only have sex with that purpose in mind. But for goodness sakes, don't enjoy it. Do it, but don't enjoy it, you filthy sinner, okay? Don't do it, right? We know sexual licentiousness is bad, right? We know it's wrong to engage in all types of sexual perversion and activities outside of marriage. But sexual prudishness, on the other end, is also wicked, sinful, and bad also, right? And sadly, that's what's permeated the church for so long. And so we get all this kind of twisted junk going on as a result. For a man to be sexually attracted to a woman is a feature of creation, not a bug. Amen? All right. You can say amen, all right? Maybe that makes you loosen up a little bit and not have your butt cheeks clenched so tight wondering, what's he going to say next, right here? Right? In the healthy way of, of, of the way God made this to work, right? For a man to be sexually attracted to a woman is what leads him to ask her out on a date, right? Seek her out, right? Maybe, maybe she's the one, right? Maybe she's going to be the suitable companion for me, the one that corresponds to me, right? There's no other way to, to find out. That doesn't mean you take a woman for a sexual test drive, right? The scripture is very clear about it. that's fornication, that is sinful. That's not, that's not what's in view here. But how else, right? If a man's got to be attracted to a woman, right? In our culture, too, women are attracted to men and they initiate because men are timid and that should not be, all right? Man should not be timid in asking a woman out or seeking her out. This is how God has made us and wired us, okay? So marriage is the vehicle that God created for the expression of the male and female sex drive. And in its intended context, which is marriage, sex is right and good, and it is to be enjoyed. Outside of that, while sex is pleasurable... 
it's not going to yield the blessed fruit that comes when it is exercised in the marital union. Outside of its proper context, we know it's sinful. And ultimately, what are the wages of sin? Death, right? And unrepentant sexual sin leads to death. All right. So with that as a foundation, y'all good? Let's look at our passage here. All right. Let's look at our passage. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Okay. Solomon uses allegorical language here to describe like, a, a number of water sources here. This, this, these words, uh, cistern, well, springs, streams, all of that. All right? He's this allegorical language to teach his son the antidote to straying off the path of fidelity to his wife. Son, here's how you can safeguard your marriage. Drink from your own faucet. Drink water from your Berkey water filter, you know, or other filtration device in your home, your own water supply, right? All of these images of water, right, referenced here, cistern, well, spring, streams, are euphemisms for the sexual pleasure found in marriage, What's a cistern? Well, a cistern, not a sister, careful what you said. Cistern was a place to store rainwater. Think about it in the time of this culture, the arid uh, climate of Canaan, the land of Canaan, the, the stony ground, all of that. What they would do is hew out of this rocky ground, they would dig into the ground several meters deep, this receptacle for rainwater. And that was absolutely necessary for the survival of a family. To have your own cistern was a huge deal. You needed that because if you didn't have that water supply, you would die. A well would be dug in certain places to tap into the underground water supplies, right? The, the aquifers. And then there would be a continuous stream of fresh water, which again was necessary for the survival of a family. So Solomon's point with this imagery is that you, he's speaking to the men here, okay, but you are to quench your sexual thirst by drinking only from the water that belongs to you. That is your own wife. It's your own wife. Now, the key to this, the, the interpretation of this passage is in verse 18, where he tells, says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, right? He's correlating fountain with the wife of your youth that you are to rejoice in there. Okay? But you're not to drink from another man's cistern or another man's well. You're only to drink from your own flowing waters, and that is making love to your own wife and your own wife alone. That's the only place you're to drink from. Everything else, off limits. Off limits. And the idea here, listen, is not sex for the sake of procreation. For making babies. So that is what happens, right? It's for the sake of enjoyment and pleasure. Get pleasure is what Solomon says. Get pleasure to his son from your own wife and your own wife alone. If cisterns and wells of life-giving water are so valuable, then how valuable is your own marriage as something worthy of safeguarding and protecting? Because in that time, if you had your own cistern and your own well, others wanted it. Genesis has some stories and some accounts there of skirmishes and, and, and things and, and wars that took place because people wanted someone else's cistern and wells. It's so valuable. How much should you protect and safeguard your marriage? 
and the sexual intimacy of your marriage. So Solomon asks his son a rhetorical question there in verse 16. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Well, what's the answer there? Of course not. Like, that's foolish. You wouldn't take your precious water and just kind of toss it out into the street. You wouldn't take that life-giving supply from that well that's continuously flowing of fresh water that comes into your home and redirect your plumbing to dump it out into the streets. It's ludicrous to do that. It's foolish to do that. Well, you wouldn't do the same thing here as well with your, the sexual relationship and sexual intimacy of your marriage. You wouldn't do that. Your own springs here is contrasted with the streams of water in the streets. So we have streams in the home and we have streams flowing in the streets. What's that about? Well, in Proverbs, street has to do with the public square. Right? has to do with everything outside of the home. The open places where everyone had access, everyone walks. It's where the whole community is. But in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 12, we see that that is also where the harlot is, the prostitute. She's in the street and in the market. She's in the common places. So that's contrasted with the home. The home is the place of fresh, clean water. There's a fountain there where sexual thirst can be satiated. And you're to drink from there alone. Everything else is like drinking muddy water filled with impurities. No one likes that. If you're thirsty, like, what would you choose to drink from? Fresh, clean, sparkling water or muddy, filthy water with all sorts of sediment and other things in it? Of course not, right? So keep the fulfillment of sexual desire to the home. That's your place. Your own cistern your own well, which is your own wife. Now, as an aside, there's some biblical scholars that believe what Solomon is intending to teach his son here, in addition to what we just talked about, is the importance of not neglecting his wife so that she won't let her streams flow out to the streets. Like, if he doesn't take care of the home front, if he doesn't take his responsibility as a husband and as a man seriously, uh, he'll give in to the forbidden woman And as a consequence, his wife then, his own wife then, may seek consolation in the arms of a stranger. I've counseled those couples many times over a few decades of ministry here. The wife is unfaithful, uh, the husband is unfaithful to his wife, and then the wife says, you know what, I'm going to do the same thing as well. Marriage is destroyed, families destroyed, right? The beauty of sex within marriage is so valuable, and it is not to be cheapened through infidelity and any other sexual sin. You're not to take the intimate and take what is intimate and private and and what is meant to to keep the marriage united, to keep the marriage strengthened and close and toss it out like trash into the filthy streets. Your own wife, your own sister, and your own fountain, that's what it's all about. Now, he underscores the admonition again here. Verse 17, let them be for yourself alone. What is them? The waters, right? The waters. And not for strangers with you. What's he saying? Find sexual pleasure in the privacy of your own marriage. Strangers are not to be brought into the marital relationship. Now that's common sense, isn't it? How do we do that? Well, there's many ways. I can think of our culture today and our time. But this is not things that are necessarily new, right, for us. But strangers aren't to be brought into the marital relationship, not through adultery, right? Being unfaithful to your spouse, 
with another married person, not through pornography, not through open marriages or swinging or any other sexual sin or perversion. Those things would be allowing strangers in to defile, to muddy, to corrupt the marriage which should be kept pure and undefiled. This is what Hebrews chapter 13, uh, uh, 4 says as a command to believers. Let marriage be held in honor among you, among all. Let the marriage bed be what? Undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That's huge. We defile it in a lot of ways. In mind and in deed. Keep the string, streams of water fresh and clean in your marriage. So important. Look at verse 18. Let's talk about the delight of marriage. Let your fountain be blessed. Again, the fountain is his own wife. Right? The imagery being used here, he's talking about the wife, the woman in the marital relationship. Solomon's prayer, Solomon's desire is that his son would have this constant source of fresh and pure and sweet water in his marital relationship. He wants his son to have a wife who will quench his thirst at all times and satisfy his sexual drive and his sexual desires. That's for the marital union. Now we could talk about his fountain be blessed in terms of fertility. That may be in view here, but that's not the context of this passage. Okay, it's about the enjoyment of sexual pleasure in the marital union. He's saying that his fountain is blessed if his own wife can sexually gratify him. That's what he's presenting here. A blessed fountain, his own wife, will satisfy him like no other woman can. So like, why are you looking outside the home? It should be right there. As a consequence of his wife's blessed state, the son will find joy in her. He'll rejoice in the wife of his youth. Right? Now, this, this statement, the wife of his youth, probably indicates right, that, that the son married young. In that culture, they all married in their teenage years. Okay? And I think there's wisdom in marrying younger and not older uh, for a variety of reasons. And we don't really have time to explore here today. Uh, but, but the son here married young, uh, and, and he's saying, man, you can rejoice in the wife of your youth. And if you go to that fountain, your thirst, your sexual thirst will be satisfied and quenched. You don't need to look anywhere else. In verse 19, Solomon uses some poetic language now to describe a beautiful wife. And this is reminiscent of another book of wisdom literature, Song of Solomon. How many of you have read Song of Solomon? How many of you think that's just an allegory about uh, Jesus and the church and his bride? Like, there's a lot of teachings concerning it. I don't think it's that. I think it's exactly as you read it, right? It's a, it's a romance novel for the people of God, right? Uh, the beauty of sex in marriage and the marital union and, and the bride and the groom and all. Of, it's just beautiful, poetic language there. And so... This kind of, you read Song of Solomon, you're going to see similar language concerning, uh, concerning this here, right? This reflects a culture that used animal imagery as metaphors for erotic romance and lovemaking between a man and a woman. So in verse 19, he says, she's like a lovely deer, a graceful doe. How would you like to be compared to some animal? 
She is like a furry bear. Well, that's probably not the same thing, right? You know, a graceful deer, like a lovely, gracious doe, right? In that right, culture, that's a beautiful animal. That's a, a, one of the most graceful uh, of creatures there. If you read uh, Song of Solomon 4 and 7, you're going to see imagery used to convey the beauty of the bride and also select features of her anatomy, all right? And how he extols those particular things and the language used there. Okay, that's in your Bible. Okay, you should read it. Don't skip over it. It's God's word, right? It's there for our edification and, and, and great purpose, right? So to say this about her is a, it's a beautiful compliment, right? It's a huge compliment to be compared to a graceful doe. Because the awesome thing is that you wouldn't say that of the man. The woman is not like the man, praise God. She's distinct. She's beautiful. She's graceful, right? Kind of like the man, but not really like the man, right? She's something else. And they got parts that fit together, and that is the way God made for it to be. The woman is the beautiful and ideal complement to the man. Now look what he says next here. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. What does that mean? I want you to know, I did an extensive uh, study on that word that's translated breast. I went through every single lexical and grammatical tool at my disposal to try to discern what exactly does this word breasts mean in the original language. And you know what I discovered? It means breasts, man. <laughs> it's breasts. Yep, yep. It's that beautiful female body part, right? It means breasts, right? That's what it is. See, this feature of the female anatomy is not only for nursing babies, but also for giving the husband pleasure in lovemaking. How's that? That's in your Bible. The wife's erogenous members, here represented by her breasts, are the source of the richest and most satisfying drink for the husband. It is to fill him at all times with delight. That word fill, you want to... Let me tell you how how a little little raunchy here in God's word. That word fill him is drench him with delight. Okay, that's the language. Her lovemaking is to satisfy him, fill him with delight. And at all times, right, it's to be satisfying and unending. Then he says, be intoxicated always in her love. That word intoxicated in the Hebrew means to go astray. Now, we use that also of someone who's inebriated, right? Because how do they walk when they're drunk? They're, they're staggering, right? And that's the, that's the implication here, that always being intoxicated in love means going astray in her, not just love, it's actually love-making, okay? So, thinking about someone who is drunk, swerves, and meanders, and staggering with his walk, this is the imagery Uh, presented to us here. The husband is to be so enraptured in his wife's lovemaking that it leaves him dazed and staggering like a drunk man. That's awesome, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. He's totally caught up with her. He's swept up in delight with his own wife. That's how it's supposed to be, brothers and sisters. This is how God designed it. That's the wisdom of God concerning marriage. Now, notice the phrases here, at all times and always. Always. The blessed wife's lovemaking should always be available to quench her husband's thirst and leave him intoxicated. 
That's it. Wives, you are one of the most single most important deterrents to a husband drifting from his marital covenant. I don't think some of you realize that. How important you are to that. This is not to excuse a man for drifting off. Don't misunderstand me whatsoever. But look what it's saying here. How the wife is to be available to her husband. Tremper Longman writes in his short commentary in Prover- on Proverbs, he says, the best defense against committing adultery is a strong offense in marriage. Right? And that's the antidote, the antidote here. The way to guard against unfaithfulness is to go on the offense by having regular, continual sex within the marital relationship. That is the way it is supposed to be. This is the way, brothers and sisters. All right? We're reminded uh, with verse 20 that his teaching is in the context, once again, of avoiding the forbidden woman, right? We're kind of like put back into, like, why is this in chapter 5, right? This particular lesson from a father to a son, Solomon to his son. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Right? So he's saying it's absurd to be involved with a forbidden woman when you're caught up in delight with your own wife. If you're intoxicated at home, you don't need to go and get intoxicated out with the harlot in the streets. That's the point. And, and this rhetorical question, it's like with indignation. Considering the alternative. Now, we know Solomon screwed up royally. Like, he didn't take his own medicine. He didn't listen to his own counsel. He ignored wisdom to his own peril, right? But it's almost like he's saying, why would you do something so stupid as to run to the arms of an adulteress when you can get your thirst quenched at home? That's the point. So your desire should be for your own wife. And that alone should be motivation for faithfulness in marriage. This is what God's word says to us. I want to spend a little time here and kind of walk through just some practical things. You know, there's a million things we could talk about concerning this. I don't know if I'll have time for a Q&A, but if you want, if you have questions, I'm open to, we can have them here. If you're bold enough to ask them, we'll address them. Okay, so be thinking about that as, as, as I just talk about a few things here. Practical things concerning sex and marriage in, in the marital relationship, okay? A lot of nuances, um, but let's see if we can get through some of this. If you have questions, ask them. If you want to speak privately about them, of course, I'm available for that as well. Sexual intimacy in marriage is so important because it binds a husband and a wife together in a way that they no other relationship is bound, right? So this is something that must be cultivated, This is something that must be developed in our marriage. It takes practice. You know that. You know what that means, right? Okay. It takes practice. It takes communication. It's astounding how many husbands and wives do not talk about sex, how they're feeling, what they're experiencing, what they're not feeling, what they're not experiencing. It remains unsaid, and then bitterness creeps up in the marital relationship, right? Uh, And it takes patience and understanding as well. So I'm going to list some things in no particular order of importance, all right? And uh, I'll tell you what, if you have questions while I'm talking here, I, know I don't entertain questions while I'm preaching, but this is a time, 
Raise your hand, and I'll try to address or clarify something here as well. All right? So, men, let me, let me talk to you first. Because if you're married, you have a responsibility in keeping your fountain blessed. You have a responsibility in keeping your fountain blessed. All right? This aspect of, of having your sexual desires and thirst quenched by your wife alone, right? She's your fountain. She's to be blessed. You have a responsibility in that. You have to make sure you're preserving the purity of your marriage to make sure that water supply is kept fresh and pure and clean. That means you're watching, you know, keeping watch over your own eyes and your own heart. You're not looking at pornography. You're not flirting with a coworker or, or a female friend or anything else. Your eyes aren't drifting off when a woman who is uh, dressed a little immodestly crosses your path and you know you're just kind of like, you know, looking out of the side of your eyes, tracing her steps there. You're not doing that. Take responsibility for that. Keep that fountain blessed. You can do that also by building up your wife. If you're critical of your wife, you're critical, you criticize everything she does. You stress her out with your constant criticizing and complaining about the way she is or how she looks or how she's let herself go it's going to be difficult for her to quench your sexual thirst. It truly is, okay? She's going to shut that water supply valve off so fast, you know, before you can say please, okay? It's just the way it is, okay? All right, there's, there's a place here for you wooing your spouse towards this act. I'm going to talk about other things about sex and marriage here in a few moments, but I want to lay that groundwork. Lead... And love your wife, men, in such a way that she is a blessed fountain. And for the life of me, I don't understand why some men do not get this. If you don't treat your wife well, if you don't treat her good at home, don't expect a quenching of your thirst. At least not a satisfying one. Right? Build your wife up. Build her up. Wives, you have a responsibility also in this. Build your husbands up. Build your husbands up. When they come home from a hard day's work, make sure things are in order and make sure you're available to him also. A lot of women, those maybe who are, don't work outside of the home, and I'll, I'll address that in here in a moment here too. You know, their husbands come home and immediately they're hammering him with a to-do list and, and wanting to unload their frustrations of the day and with the kids. And he's like, man, I'm just exhausted from work. And I come home and she's already nagging me. It's kind of hard to get in the place where you'll want to engage in this, you know, streams of water activity, right? And quenching and satiating thirst, right? doesn't work that way. Now, we're in a culture, right, where both spouses typically work outside of the home. Everybody's tired. You get home, and it's very hard, and especially if you have kids or young kids, it's hard then to get back into this space where sexual intimacy has a priority in the marital relationship. And that usually goes by the wayside. But it's super critical and important. You need to talk about it. You need to figure out ways, times, where you are engaging in this kind of activity where sexual thirst is being satiated. If you don't, guess what? Your hearts are going to long for it somewhere else. That's what the warning here is about. So 
We need to rekindle romance. A lot of us were very romantic when we were dating. Not so much when we got married, right? It's kind of like, Woo, well, we're mission accomplished, right? And then, you know, the guy grows a massive gut and, you know, he's got his hands down his pants scratching himself, all right? Something wrong with that. Or the woman lets herself go, right? We need to pay attention to that, right? We need to take care of ourselves. We need to figure out ways to rekindle romance in the marital relationship. Again, this is supposed to be pleasurable. This is not just something you got to do, got to make babies. No, it's not just that, man. You got to enjoy it because this is what keeps you united in, in this one flesh union and will strengthen your marriage there, okay? So figure out ways to woo your spouse. Figure out how to get away somewhere without the kids. That's hard for, for, for couples, you know, especially ones that have young kids. And those years are incredibly difficult. And, and so here's why I'm going to encourage. Parents maybe with older kids or, or maybe uh, don't have kids in the home anymore, see how you can help a young family out, a young couple out in this way who probably needs to get away where this is kind of like fallen by the wayside in the marriage and it's neglected and it's causing stress in the marital relationship. Help them out. Might need to establish some type of date nights, just you and your spouse, you know, where you can talk one-on-one and, 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 and really unpack. And again, this is about rekindling the relationship. Um, the one another's of the New Testament are here important for us. You know, those commands on how we're to one another ourselves in the Scripture, how we're to treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, your spouse, right, if she's a believer, is a brother or sister in Christ. Yes? So those one another's apply there. It's not just for the church community then. So what are you to do at home? Everything these one another's command us of have to be done at home. Be gracious to one another. Be kind to one another. Serve one another. Meet one another's needs. Look out to the, for the interests of one another. Don't look out for your own interests, right? Be patient with one another. All of those things apply to the marital relationship, And those will go a long way to putting a spouse in the wonderful mood, in the wonderful mood to have their thirst quenched. Yes? Yeah. Some uh, couples have gotten into a habit of sleeping in separate bedrooms. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's never a good practice. Oh, he snores a lot. Or she snores a lot. There's women who snore a lot. I know they are. I know there are. I'm a, I'm a ferocious snorer. I wake myself up snoring, you know. Um, and and Betsa could easily say, you know, well, I'm going to go to the sofa, you know, so I can get some rest. Don't get into the habit of not being in that bed together at night, brothers and sisters. You open yourself up to danger. It's not a good thing, not a good practice. And that's going to guarantee very few opportunities for lovemaking in marriage. All right? And here's something important. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want you to, to turn there. Turn there in your Bible. It's, it's a good passage for you to be acquainted with and familiar with. And uh, obviously I'm not going to hear you turn to your Bible on your phone, but uh, I, wish, I wish I did. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's a very important principle, brothers and sisters. Do not deprive one another of sexual intimacy, ever. Do not deprive one another of sexual intimacy, ever. There's some caveats, but let's look at what God's Word says here. 
We're going to read the first five verses here. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, Paul is addressing a particular question that was asked of him at some point, and now he's giving his response. But it is not a response that is a command from the Lord, or he's not saying, thus saith the Lord. He's like, here's my opinion. I'll explain more in a moment. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here's the point. Do not deprive one another. A sexless marriage should never exist. A sexless marriage among Christians should never exist. Now, there may be physical reasons, um, a sickness, some other impediment from which a married couple may not be able to be sexually intimate. That is beyond the scope of what Paul is addressing here, right? So I don't want you to think, you know, is there never a place? What does this mean? No, there, there are some legitimate reasons where this may not be a possibility, and we can talk about other things concerning that, but that's not the point being addressed here, right? Paul here, in addressing this, you know, he's like, you asked me about sexual relations, but here's my response. Just focus on serving Jesus, all right? The time is near at hand, and if you're busy with a husband or busy with a wife, you've got other concerns. I want you to have undevoted devotion to Jesus. Read the whole chapter, and you see him get to that towards the end of that chapter. That's his point. Hey, guys, I'd rather you be like me right now. Like, I don't have to worry about this, um, and I'm just free to serve Jesus. And if you're married, you're not going to be as free. You have other concerns, worldly concerns, to deal with in taking care of your husband or your wife. So that's what he's talking about here. He's not giving a command from the Lord here. Again, that would go against the creation mandate, wouldn't it? That's not what he's doing here, okay? Each man and woman should marry so they don't give in to the temptation to sexual immorality. Paul says, get your own wife, get your own husband, all right? I get it. You're going to be sexually tempted. Don't do that. Get married, all right? So that neither the husband or the wife will get tempted to sin sexually. Each should then give to the other what is due. And what is due them? Their conjugal rights. Do you need an explanation of that? Conjugal? No? Get a dictionary. No, all right? Give to one another what is due, their rights to sex within marriage, to be sexually satisfied and their sexual thirst be quenched in the marital union. Because of the one flesh union, the wife belongs to the husband and the husband belongs to the wife. The wife's body belongs to the husband and the husband's body belongs to the wife. Do you get that? When you're married, you do not belong to yourself any longer. You belong to your spouse. Too many married couples act like there could still be their own person and have their own authority over themselves and their spouse has nothing to say about that. You're wrong. You're 100% wrong. Okay? 
The wife's body belongs to the husband. The husband's belongs to the body. So verse 5, do not deprive one another. That's the standing order for married couples. That's the default command that we are to obey. Again, there's an exception placed in here, right? Where he says, hey, maybe you've agreed not to have sex for a limited time. And look at the reason he gives. <laughs> it's not that I'm tired because I've been working hard. <laughs> the reason he's giving is like, devote yourself to prayer and seek in the Lord. <laughs> That's a good reason to not do this. Because you're like, I want to just separate myself unto the Lord for a time. And even at that, he goes, for a limited time. Like, keep that short. Why? You could fall right again into the rut of sexual temptation if you neglect this in the marital relationship. Okay? That's the reason. So, it's not that you're tired. It may not be even if you're pregnant. It may not even be because, you know, you got a headache. That's an excuse used a lot, right? Now, again... There's a, because we don't belong to one another and because our desire is to please the Lord and please one another, we are never to force ourselves upon our spouse. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Do not misunderstand that, all right? There are some husbands who are bullies in this area and their wife is just a tool to, to satisfy them sexually. That is sinful. It's sinful. That's not the motivation. You are one flesh. You're one flesh. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind, okay? It doesn't matter what the world does. I'm speaking to Christians here, okay? So this is what guides us here. Like our sexual ethic goes beyond the world's, always. And concerning marriage and how we're to treat one another, uh, there is a specific way prescribed for us in Scripture here, okay? So he says, come back together quickly so that Satan may not tempt you. What's the point? He's saying it's dangerous to withhold sex from one another. Because in doing that, you can open up your spouse to sexual temptation and sin. It's that serious. And if you're not having sex regularly in your marriage, that's a danger sign, brothers and sisters. It truly is. It truly is. I want you to, I want you to, to, to feel the, the weight of what he's saying here regarding this. Now, again, the questions might be, what if I don't want to have sex? Some of you might feel like that in your marriage right now. I'm not interested in it any longer. You know, I don't, I don't have a, a strong libido. I don't, you know, I just, I don't desire him. I don't desire her. Or again, I'm always tired. I'm never in the mood. There, there's a lot of reasons here. And you and your spouse need to be able to communicate openly about this. For the love of all that is good and holy, talk about it. Right? Talk about it with a mature brother and sister, a, a mature couple, and say, would you help us kind of sort through some of this stuff in our marriage here? Because it's important. You might need to see a doctor. There could be something physiologically wrong. That, that, listen, that's a real deal. We have broken bodies. Okay? So this is not to heap guilt upon you if you're struggling in this area. It's like, Talk about it. Figure it out because this is important for the strength and the unity of your marriage, brothers and sisters, and to preserve ourselves from sexual temptation and sin. Okay? You belong to your spouse. Okay? Your spouse has a right to have sex. It's his or her right. It's what is owed to them in marriage. There are some 
Women, especially, I'm not saying men don't do this, but this is predominantly women, right? Some wives who manipulate their husband with the promise of sex in order to get something or to get their way. If you do this for me, if you get this for me, then guess what? We're going to have some snuggle time. Or whatever your pet word is for the activity, right? There are some wives who withhold sex from their husband in order to punish them for not being what they want them to be or doing what they want them to do. Both of those things are sinful. Both of those need to be repented of. That has no place in the marital relationship. Again, you don't belong to yourself. He belongs to you. She belongs to you. You belong to one another. You don't withhold what is your right in the marital relationship. So sex in marriage should never be used as a transactional tool. I'll give you this if you do this for me or you get this for me. Then I'll have sex with you. That's not the way that works, brothers and sisters. That should not be among Christian marriages. So the right biblical sexual ethic here, the wisdom of marriage here, can deter us from sexual sin and infidelity. It is the antidote. It's the antidote. Do you have any questions regarding that? It's a good time right now. I know everyone's like, I, uh, boy. Because you could always say something like this, I'm asking for a friend. I'm asking for a brother or sister who told me this. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's a hot topic, isn't it? But it's such a critical and important one, right? We need to take responsibility for ourselves because, again, this body doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Betsa. So I should take care of it because it's hers. And she should do the same because that's my body. It belongs to me. All right? It's important, brothers and sisters. And I know we don't like to talk about that kind of stuff, right? That really makes uncomfortable. But it's important. And if your spouse is telling you, again, be gracious, be kind, be gentle, be understanding. Talk to your spouse. Talk to your wife. Talk to your husband. Hey, man, man, boy, you're really packing on that gut. It's getting in the way of things. All right? <laughs> Pay attention to that, okay? Pay attention to that. Husbands, there's something about your wife's appearance, man, brothers, Use wisdom in how you speak to your wives, man, and talk to them. But talk about it. It's that important and it's that critical. But we've got to take care of, of these bodies. They're super important uh, because they're not our own. Okay? Thank you for asking that and saying that, Maureen. Great comment. Anything else that you want to ask for a friend? <laughs> Yeah. Read the room. Read the room, room, right? When you come home, again, this is the beautiful thing. When I worked outside of the home for many years, you know, Betsy knew when I walked in the door, you know, she she knew how to how to act in a way that would not burden me further. Like she knew that wasn't the time to unload on me, to bring everything up. Hey, we're going through this. Oh, man, there's not enough money in the checkbook, whatever it was. She knew to give me some time. Just a little time. I didn't need hours, but I just a little time to decompress and just relax. Right, because home is a place of refuge. If your home is a war zone, man, you got you got some work to do, brothers and sisters. Your home is a place of peace and solace and refuge. So, yeah, she's saying read the temperature. 
Know when to respond, when to act, when to speak, what to say. That's wisdom. That's, you, you need wisdom in your marriage. You just got to have it. It goes a long way, brothers and sisters. Is that, was that what you intended to say? See, we, we, we read each other's minds now. Yes, absolutely, 100%. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. And, and again, this is the part of being understanding, you know. Uh, and, again, I look across this room. There's a lot of two-income households here, two people working outside of the home. That dynamic uh, is, is a world different than, right, the biblical culture of that time. You know, so we've got to work out the right rhythms in our home to make space for this kind of fun stuff. All right? You have to. It's, it's critical. It's important. Anything else? Turn the TV off. Amen. What a distraction that is. Yeah, from sexual intimacy, right? Where it's just... It's, that's the easiest thing to do. It doesn't require anything in the relationship, right? There's no... Oh, there's temptations galore on there, right? Because that's, that's another place our eyes can wander. We can begin to fantasize about others than our spouse and quenching our thirst with someone other than our spouse. Uh, you, again, wisdom, wisdom, discernment. We got to have that, 100%. 100%. Anything else? Yes. Yes. Is there, is there room for if one child is coveting his or her tablet screen and the other child is like, oh, I'll do it just for my Well, keeping in mind that, yes, marriage is a covenant. Marriage is something that applies to all of humanity, right? And so even, even this admonition about, you know, what should take place in a marriage is something that God gave for all, all of humanity. So the question is, what if one party of the covenant here has abandoned or neglected their duty? If so, as believers, Scripture gives us some very explicit instructions concerning this. Even Paul talks about it. Jesus, of course, talks about this, right, when the marital covenant is broken, for, especially for infidelity. I'll address that one because this, the Scripture is very clear in the aspect of infidelity. That is grounds for divorce. Again, is that what God has desired, designed? Absolutely not, right? Why is he permitted? Well, it's a fracturing, it's a breaking of the marital covenant, and one party has said, uh, I've chosen to be unfaithful in it, and the other party then is released from the marital, that marital covenant itself. In the case of neglect in this area, so if your spouse neglects you sexually, you know, uh, in the marital relationship, what are you going to do? There's, you cannot force yourself upon your spouse. You cannot demand your spouse to fulfill their obligation because they won't. They won't. So then the question is the question then what do you do then? Like is that is Right. Yeah. You may not like this answer, um, but in, in the case here where I'm just going to go from the husband to the wife, let's say, because it's usually the husband who's 
wanting to be sexually satisfied and fulfilled. Not that there aren't women who want that as well from their husbands, but typically it's, it kind of is in, that, is in that vein and in that particular direction itself. In so much as the husband is not forcing himself violently upon his wife, it is the wife's obligation to satisfy her husband sexually, okay? Uh, even if she may not really want to. So it's, it's the obligation. It's the obligation of the covenant of the marriage. That's the general rule of thumb. Something more specific, then uh, I'd like to talk about that on a case-by-case basis because there may be other things. I'm just giving a general, so please, please understand that in the context of it. The general rule of thumb is do not deprive one another. That's where we start. Start from that basis. Okay? The husband is overbearing, brutish, violent, forcing himself upon his wife. That is never proper. That's never right. Okay? And uh, if we find out about that, we, we hurt those people. Okay? <laughs> so we don't want that. We don't want that. All right? <laughs> okay? But if it's just like, I need it, I want it, you know, let's do it, then you should. Then typically, generally, you should. Again, this is where conversation needs to take place. If there's something more, uh, so other nuances and details regarding that, I'd love to address on a case-by-case basis. I don't know if that answered your question fully. Okay. Anything else? We got time. We can go all day. I feel like everybody's loosened up a little bit. All right. And I hope you found that helpful. Anything else? And then we'll... Yes. Hundred percent, yeah. If you didn't hear what Maureen said, was regards to the resource we have in the Holy Spirit and through the power of God's Spirit to to pray for God to give us love for the spouse that we're being challenged to love. Because yes, there are times that it's challenging to love one another in marriage. We may have a very challenging situation in marriage where we need God to to work. You know, when you read, read chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians there, because there's a lot of uh, practical, helpful insight, you know, especially here when it's talking about, listen, you know, if you're married to an unbelieving husband, right, you're not to stay. As long as he's not putting you away or asking for a divorce, what are you to do? You're to stay. Why? Because there's a covenant there. And it's a covenant recognized because it's a creational covenant. This is not, again, this is not, marriage is not a Christian institution, we have a great insight into the institution of marriage. We have the sacredness, right, the, what it truly represents. We have the additional injunctions, admonitions, exhortations, and commands concerning Christian marriage. But marriage in general is for all of humanity. So if you come to the faith but your spouse has it and he's willing to stay married or she's willing to stay married, you're to stay married. You're to stay married. And what are you to do? Pray, right? Pray. Seek the Lord. Be with them. Serve Serve your spouse, love your spouse, be great. All the things we've talked about, 
to your spouse. And what could the Lord do through that? Marriage is hard. Marriage is difficult. Our marriage is continually under assault in our culture, in our world. We have our own sinful you know, flesh that gets in the way. Our own sinful impulses that you know, can wreck our marital relationships, right? We have an enemy, right, uh, who does everything in his power to attack marriages, to destroy marriages, right? Instead of intimacy in marriage and sexual satisfaction, what do we have? We have marriages fraught with uh, distrust, and we have them fraught with unfaithfulness in a variety of different ways, right? But what are we to do? What do we do as, as followers of Christ? We need the wisdom of marriage, we need it. It's why we mustn't stray from the path of wisdom uh, in marriage. It's why we need to heed what it tells us to get wisdom, to get wisdom, to be in right relationship with wisdom. We have to, we have, to have it if we want to have marriages that are God-glorifying and if we want to have relationships that are blessed. And who's wisdom? Wisdom's not a thing, right? Wisdom's a person. And the wisdom of marriage here is pointing to, to Christ. To Christ, he is wisdom. He is wisdom from God. This is why we continually point to Jesus. Listen, you cannot walk in marriage, uh, walk in wisdom in marriage, have the right sexual ethics in your marital relationship unless you're in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Otherwise, your marriage is going to be severely handicapped and challenged. So look to Christ. Why? Whereas we're unfaithful, he never will be. He never will be. He is the faithful husband. He's the faithful groom. He'll never cheat on us. He'll never stray onto the path of the adulteress. And that devotion that we're to have that's talked about here that should exist between uh, a husband and a wife, this kind of intimacy, is just a small glimpse of the devotion that Christ has towards us, his bride. It is perfect. It is pure. It is holy. And ultimately, he's the one you and I need to be caught up with. He's the one that you and I need to be so enraptured with and delight in. When we do that, the kind of impact that has on our marriages, brothers and sisters, words can't express what those are. So my prayer is that the Lord would strengthen our marriages and that you, brothers and sisters who are married... Go home and put it into practice. That's your homework. Here, go ahead and stand. Let me pray for us.